a blessed, blessed day to each of you, especially as we celebrate uh, the annual feast of uh, Pentecost, which is a continuation of uh, the celebration of the Jewish nation 50 days after the Passover, which was the first of the seven feasts of the Jewish calendar. I hope you're all well, healthy, content, happy, wherever you are. And I hope that uh, you will join me as you study with me and take your Bibles in hand because we want to make sure that whatever we study, whatever we learn, whatever we preach, whatever we teach, is from the Bible and the Bible alone. Today we want to study the meaning and history and the celebration of uh, Pentecost. I would have to say that of all the feasts that we have in the Jewish nation that project forward to the culmination of the plan of salvation, Pentecost is the most important. One would ask why. Why is Pentecost the most important? Because it is at Pentecost that all the promises of God for the human race are fulfilled. It is at this feast that all of the promises that God made to Adam, to Abraham, through Moses, to David, that we find the fulfillment of the salvation of the human race. I'm sad to say that the importance of Pentecost has been diminished and even lost, especially by today's celebration of the Pentecostal understanding, the charismatic understanding and teaching of Pentecost. It is assumed that Pentecost is about the gift of the Holy Spirit that a believer may speak in unknown tongues and that that is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a teaching that we do not find in scriptures at all. Not at all. In earnest, in North America and then through North America to the rest of the world, it started around 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, and then eventually in 1906 in a larger group on Azusa Street in a, in a gathering on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And so what we see today as a celebration of Pentecost and, un, and speaking in unknown tongues is not at all related to the biblical teaching of Pentecost. And as I say that, I invite you to study with me the real meaning of Pentecost and why it is important. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 and let's read there 
the experience of the disciples. Now to set up this passage, we have to discuss a little bit about the background. The Jews used to celebrate Pentecost as a memory, a remembrance of the time when God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai were given 50 days after the Jews left Egypt. When they came out of the slavery of Egypt, they were given a new relationship. And that new relationship included God living with them. Now, physically or spiritually, we know that God came to live with them and it was celebrated in the festival of the Feast of Weeks when the temple was built and God came to reside in the most holy place. And we see on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, there where God came to be with the people until the temple was destroyed. The temple of Solomon was destroyed. However, the relationship with God, where you with God said, you will be my people and I will be your God, that new covenant started at Sinai. And, and, and as a result, Pentecost was the memory, was the commemoration of that special relationship. God gives the law to the Jews. Now, that same, that, that, that same celebration is also celebrated in the Pentecost in the book of Acts, remembering that same duplication of the coming of the law. In Sinai, the law was written on stone. We are doing a summary of last week. But now, here at Pentecost in Jerusalem, the law of God is given to the people to be in their hearts, not on a table of stone anymore. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah 31. But the law is now written on the hearts of the people. So there is a new relationship where God is no longer living in the temple made by hands, but he's living in the temple that is the body, the human body and the body of Christ, which is the church. God in people, his people, and God within the church. We see that in Revelation, where we see Jesus walking among the candlesticks. We're told the candlesticks are the churches. And Jesus is among and within the church. That's a new relationship. So at Pentecost, there was a transformation that was taking place. But how is this a fulfillment of the plan of salvation? Let me study that with you today. Because this is a reason for celebration, not only for Christians, but for the entire human race. Chapter 2 of the book of Acts, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Why were they all in, Pent uh, why were they all in Jerusalem? They were there because Jesus had told them to go back and wait in Jerusalem when Jesus was ascended ten days prior to Pentecost. He told his disciples to go back and wait. So they were there waiting in the upper room, the same place where they had had the Last Supper. And as they were there together, and by the way, take note, they were not doing anything in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
They were just there and praying and celebrating with one another. They were not trying to earn the righteousness of God. They were not trying to earn the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. Get that? Every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us understand them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. So this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. They will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will, turn, will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. There, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose for, and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Brothers, I'm going to skip a couple of verses. He's quoting David now. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath 
that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke, to, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to new life, and we are all witnesses uh, from the Father, the Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies footstools of your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. That is Pentecost. Let us dissect that passage and understand what Pentecost really means. On that day, there were people there in Jerusalem from how many nations? It tells us they were there from all nations. Every nations. Where do we find that the, the, the idea of all nations? Where did all nations come from? Let's go back and study the promise of God to Abraham. Prior to Abraham, we have the story of the record of Noah. We're going to mention Noah in chapter 10 in just a little bit. But first, I want to go to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, that Abraham, I will make many, many, many children and descendants through you. He gives him three promises. And he says that I will give you a special home, a new home. And through you, all nations will be blessed. All nations will be blessed. In order to understand what God means by all nations and what the specificity of that 12 nation, all nations is this. In chapter 10 of Genesis, we find the experience of Noah. Noah has gone through all of the promises that God had made him. And now there's a review of all of his descendants, all of his children. And we know that through it is recorded. Well, we have the names of all of his descendants, his, his sons. And then we're told that altogether there were 72 descendants of Noah. And those 72 represent the entire world, all nations, every nation. So when God tells Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him, he's talking about every descendant that came out of 
Noah. That is the promise. In today's world, we find discussions about God's promise to the Jews, to Jacob. And in that discussion, we hear from theologians, preachers, pastors, that because Jews did not accept Jesus Christ, God broke that covenant with them and rejected them. And from, from after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he picked a new people to represent him instead of the Jews. There was no such breaking of the covenant with the Jews. Never was. Because God keeps his word. The promise to the Jews, the covenant with Jews, was not canceled ever to be replaced by the church. It wasn't. The covenant with Jews was fulfilled, not canceled. That's why Jesus said that I have come to fulfill the covenant, the Last Supper. He didn't say, I've come to cancel. I've come to fulfill. Why? Jesus was the, was the fulfillment. He was the culmination of that promise through whom the world would be saved. The promise that God made to Abraham was this. That through you, the entire world will be saved. All nations will be blessed. And in the, to help the working, to, in, to facilitate the working of that promise... God provided the Jewish nation to whom he gave the special covenant so that through the covenant they would go and reside in the special land of Canaan where they would, where they would project the salvation of God through the sanctuary setting where they would show the plan of salvation through the seven feasts of the Jewish calendar in the sanctuary and the daily sacrifices the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. The, it, was, it was all the showing of the, of the mercy and the grace of God. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to David that through you will come the Son of Man and the Son of the Most High. And it was that fulfillment. It was that fulfillment of God that we see in chapter 2, that Peter is talking about. In fact, Peter quotes David. Peter quotes David. He says that, that, that David said about, about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And Paul then, in Hebrews chapter uh, 6 to 9, talks about Jesus fulfilling that promise and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Pentecost. Pentecost is the celebration of the evidence that the world was saved by Jesus Christ as promised by God to Abraham. That is why when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Why? 
that where I am, you may be also. Jesus was sure of our attendance with him, with the Father. In fact, Paul says that we are in Jesus, already sitting at the right hand of the Father. We are in Jesus Christ. Just as John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, that may they be in me as I am in you, that we may all be one. That is the fulfillment of the promise of salvation in this passage. And what was the purpose of the Holy Spirit? What was the purpose? Why did God send the Holy Spirit? Go to John chapter 14. Let's go to John chapter 7 first. In John chapter 7, Jesus says that you, those who thirst and those come to me, you will have streams of living water in your bellies that you will never thirst again. He's not talking about water that we drink for our physical sustenance. John explains that. When you go to verse uh, 30 on, he says, what Jesus meant by this was the coming of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was not come in its fullness because Jesus had not yet been raised. And then in John chapter 17, Jesus said, uh, sorry, he said Jesus, uh, John uh, explains in, in, in 7 that Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? To be glorified, in John 17, it says that Jesus is glorified when he is before the Father after the resurrection. And that when he, is, when he wins over death, when he conquers death, and is raised up to heaven in the most holy place, in the presence of God, when he is glorified, only then will the Holy Spirit come in its fullness. Now I ask you, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit's attendance in our lives? Think about it. What is it? Does it make any sense? Whatever your practice and your understanding is, is it biblical? We can't have my opinion and another pastor's opinion or the opinion of any theologian. We've got to go to the Bible. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? John 14, Jesus said, I will send you another comforter. For what reason? Comforter, that you may have understanding of the word of God. That you may have understanding. You may have full understanding of the word of God. So the Holy Spirit teaches us. We're also told that the Holy Spirit brings back to remembrance the things that we have learned. What does that mean? If I don't study the Word of God, there is no way He can bring it to remembrance, can He? If God communicated with me and with you through the prophets and put His Word in here, it's important. 
that we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us to study the word. That we may remember, that he may bring it to our remembrance as needed. What else was the Holy Spirit promised for? It was to transform our lives. Transform our lives. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5. What is it? The fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit. So when we have the Spirit of God, when we're going to experience Pentecost in our lives, there will be a transformation. And the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, forgiveness. If I don't have those in my life, that is evidence that there has been no baptism of the Holy Spirit in my life. It is the Holy Spirit that sanctifies me. The Bible tells us, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That is gauging whether or not the Spirit of God has descended on me. Nowhere does it tell us that the evidence of the Holy Spirit is speaking in unknown tongues. I'm going to come to that in just a minute. We see that the Holy Spirit also descended on others who were not Jews, who became Christians. We have the experience of Cornelius. And we're told that he also spoke in tongues as the disciples did. So in the same way as the disciples did, as the apostles did at Pentecost, which means... They spoke in languages that people understood. So, we have a transformation. Third thing, what does the Holy Spirit do? The third item. The last command that Jesus gave is recorded in Matthew 28. All power on heaven and on earth is given to me. All power on heaven and on earth is given to me for what reason? For what reason? That you may pray with power and that you may pray for miracles for yourselves, that God may answer your prayer, that God may heal you and uh, do special favors? It doesn't say that at all. The only reason we see in the Bible for miracles was to confirm the witness of the gospel. Never for the purposes of self-serving. What is the reason, what is the purpose that Jesus defined in Matthew 28? All power in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go ye therefore teach all nations, or we have all nations again, Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things. A couple of things to remember here. The purpose of the Holy Spirit being given to us is not for ourselves. Not for ourselves. 
is for the sake of preaching of the gospel, for the spreading of the gospel, for saving souls. When I love people, when I love the world, I am caused by the Spirit of God to feel for them, to be concerned about their future, about their eternal life. And as a result, I can't sit on my hands. I've got to go and share what God has done for me so that others may join us in heaven. Nowhere are we told that speaking in unknown tongues is the work of the Holy Spirit. One day we're going to have a more complete study on that subject. But I want to close with one quick mention of this very issue of speaking in unknown tongues because we cannot allow the annual Feast of Pentecost go by without addressing the question of unknown tongues. What I want to do is ask each of you to take your Bibles and read chapters 12, 13, and 14 by yourself without any word from me or any other pastor. But I'm going to give you a quick summary. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. Don't stop halfway. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to Corinthians, the first letter, because he'd received reports from Corinth that there were some terrible, terrible things happening in Corinth, uh, in, including uh, people fighting with one another, one another going to court. Uh, there was stealing. There was misuse of uh, church uh, funds and church uh, uh, food even, uh, incest, immorality, all kinds of things, and what was happening in worship services. Now, in that area, there was a certain... Uh, pagan cult that practiced the speaking of unknown languages, which is still the experience of many Gentile or let's say pagan tribes in Africa and Russia, even parts of India. In India, and uh, if you study Kundalini Hinduism, you'll find it there. If you go to uh, Africa and uh, go to nature worship uh, sessions, you'll find it there. And so in Corinth, this was the experience of the people. And many Corinthians had become Christians. And as they joined the church, one of the issues that, they were that the church was dealing with was speaking in unknown tongues. So the Apostle Paul begins to write this letter to the church, and up until verse, uh, chapter uh, 11, he didn't uh, write the book in chapters, but up until chapter 11, the apostle Paul covers all of the problems with the church that they were confronting. In chapter 11, he goes to, now, he goes a second, now about worship. And he begins to talk to them about worship. And it is here that he talks about the role of women in church and the Lord's Supper and so on. And then in chapter uh, 11 and 12, he begins to get into the very, very serious problem 
of speaking in unknown tongues. He starts off by explaining that in the church there are many, many gifts, and they're all good. But, he says, everybody has a different gift. Not everybody has the same gift. That addresses this question of whether or not every Christian should be speaking in tongues. Obviously, the Apostle Paul says, no. Then, he goes to chapter 13, and he says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, there are those who say that speaking in unintelligible languages, it's a heavenly language, it's a language of heaven, so that's why we don't understand it. The Apostle Paul talks about that in, in, in chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. That's what he's talking about, what we're experiencing today. So what we're experiencing in church today was being experienced in Corinth at that time. And it had found its way into the church through pagan practices. He says, if I speak in the unknown tongues, tongues of angels, but I don't have love, I am nothing. No good. Some people like to say that chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is the love chapter. It is not the love chapter. It is not. The Apostle Paul talks about love. But he talks about love in comparison to speaking in tongues and other gifts. And so what he does is he brings, the, he brings a discussion, the debate of speaking in tongues from chapter 11, 12, 13. And finally in chapter 14 he brings it to a conclusion. So chapter 13 is only an explanation of the conclusion which is in chapter 14. The apostle didn't write in chapters. He just wrote in a letter. But it's divided up by others later. But what he, the conclusion he makes is that if you must speak in tongues, do it at home. If you must, don't do it in church. And if you think you have to do it in church, only do it if there is somebody there who has the verifiable gift of interpretation. And if one person is speaking, the other must interpret. And nobody else ought to speak in an unknown tongue unless the one sits down and allows somebody else as a message to the congregation. He says that speaking in unknown tongues is for self-edification, not for the edification of the church. It doesn't do the church any good at all. But if it makes you feel good, go home, do it there. You don't need me to tell you these things. But please, don't allow any other pastor to tell you these things. See what the Bible says. If you are practicing speaking in tongues, I'm going to be so bold as to say that, you're, that you are practicing a pagan ritual. It is a non-biblical pagan ritual that has nothing at all to do with God and his work. The work of Pentecost was to preach the gospel that people may understand it. And instead of preaching the gospel, we go into our buildings and shout and scream in languages that nobody understands. 
thereby diminishing the work that the Spirit was sent to do. Let us allow God to transform us. I begged God to transform my life. I never wanted to be a pastor. I didn't, I didn't plan for my life to go this way. I struggle with this every day. I think we need to examine ourselves and see how far we are from God, that his spirit may take control of us, that we may be transformed, that he may use us, that our bodies become the temple of God, that our churches become the body of Christ, that we may be able to have the Holy Spirit among us, that we may do the work that God wanted us to do, that he wants us to do, not become preoccupied with using incorrect understanding, unbiblical understanding of his word and pat ourselves on the back and declare ourselves righteous. That's not it. We need to go on our knees every day and ask God to forgive us and fill us with his word, with his love, with his spirit, that the world may see that we have been with Jesus, that he is working with us, and that he may give us the strength, the bravery to stand up and say what needs to be said, that I am saved through Jesus Christ. God bless you as you embark on your journey with God through his Holy Spirit. Amen.